we thought we don't have a track record. And what we realized is you're actually building your track record the whole time. Your track record is your life resume. It's everything you do uh, and how you operate at your work or at school if you're in college. Everything you do kind of shows, are you someone who thinks uh, very intelligently, makes good decisions? Are you someone who can break down financial models? Are you someone who's going to de-risk and plan out ahead of time? So when I was at Google and being a, as a program manager, everything we did was about de-risking. It was about planning, you know, how are we going to launch this hardware three years out from now? And how do I enumerate all of the risks and de-risk them ahead of time? This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 240 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Ryan Stenberg. Ryan is an ex-Google employee who gave up his career as a successful software engineer and product manager to become a full-time real estate investor focusing on commercial syndications. In this episode, Ryan will teach us how to significantly increase our deal flow, raise capital from limited partners, and how to be taken seriously as a professional investor, even at a young age. So if you're interested in investing in real estate, but think you're too young to get started, and you also want to learn how to scale at a rapid pace through syndications, then you need to listen to this episode. And this real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fee. And now, on to the show. So Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let's know who you are and tell us what you do. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me. I am 24 years old right now out of the Bay Area, and I was kind of working in the tech industry uh, and recently left to be working on real estate full time. Kind of a couple years back, I started buying real estate out in Cincinnati, and it was going just a lot slower than I wanted it to be. Kind of buy, save for the next one, buy, save. And so over the last year, we found a way to accelerate that quite a bit uh, and moved out to Reno, Nevada, where we've been uh, able to do 19 million in the last year of deals out here. That's crazy. So let's go back to the beginning. What were you doing before that? And why did you get into real estate in the first place? Yeah. So before that, uh, after college, I went and worked at Google as a software engineer and then a program manager. I was working in tech and just kind of buying real estate as a side thing, just somewhere to put my money that I could, uh, that I was actually excited about. Before that, it was stocks and I could just never get excited about it. So I started getting into real estate because it was more exciting, more tangible. And um, that transition kind of, you know, obviously accelerated a lot since then. Uh, but I ended up leaving Google in January of 21, and then uh, going towards full-time real estate. That's everything from syndication, wholesaling, and, and whatnot. So let me ask you, I mean, people would die to have your job. You're a product manager at Google. Yeah, that's huge, right? It's huge. People do like software engineering and then become engineers, but some people go on the product manager route. It's, I guess it's cooler, right? You, you have bigger ideas, you implement your stuff, and then you actually get compensated really well. People take MBAs to become product managers at these tech companies. So tell me, why did you decide to leave Google to pursue real estate full-time? Yeah, for me, a lot of it's about leverage and it's leverage of your money, but also of your time and your ability to grow and other things like that. And so the opportunity at Google was an amazing opportunity. I was there for about two and a half years um, and grew a lot in my ability to organize myself, to lead others and motivate others and and get them on board. Uh, But that learning pace was starting to slow down a little bit. And with real estate, there was so much left to learn and so much to leverage about my time and my money and, and honestly, the relationships and whatnot. 
And so it just became kind of a simple equation of, for me, of, of leverage and where I can put my resources to work better. So I was wondering, um, what direction did you decide to go into? Your single family investments you guys weren't scaling as much. So what did you guys decide to do next? Yeah, so we were purchasing small properties out in the Midwest in Cincinnati, kind of triplexes and quadplexes. Yeah, they were slow, as you mentioned. And it took us really, you know, the better part of a year to kind of get clarity on what constraints we were putting on ourselves and that were blocking us from going faster. So we started to kind of unravel those constraints and remove them and found that if you say, hey, I can only buy in this one city and I can only use my own money and I can only you know, purchase this type of property and I have to do it remotely, then you really kind of are stuck with not much left at the end of all that. You don't really have a lot of options. There's not a lot you can do. And as you start to remove these constraints, which are actually just kind of you know in your head and in your mind a lot of the time, then you find we can actually go way faster. We can get way better properties, way better deals, get in at lower prices and all sorts of other things. Uh, actually, what kind of really helped us out was uh, at the same time that we started to have these realizations that we were constraining ourselves, I had a mastermind group where we were kind of coming to terms with the fact that we wanted to go faster. We, we cared a lot about financial independence and it kept coming back as the primary thing we wanted to focus on in the next year or two so that we could set up a foundation so that we could focus on other things in life down the road. Uh, as we kind of came to terms with that and became more confident, uh, we listened to a podcast that was on Bigger Pockets. Uh, it was a guy, Will Brown, and he had this kind of thesis. He was, he was a young guy, like 19 um, at the time, and he wholesaled close to a million dollars in his first year. Um, and so we kind of resonated with him because we, we were young as well. And so what he claimed was deal flow is everything, especially when you're young. You're not bringing a ton of capital to the table. You're not bringing relationships you've had for 20 years in the industry to the table. So deal flow is everything. And we took that to heart. And we just went after deal flow and said, that's what we're going to bring to the table better than anyone else. Um, and so we just went after sourcing property and we all have a tech background. So it's me, my partners, uh, one of them was at Amazon, the other at PayPal. And so we started using that software to our advantage and, and writing some stuff to go source property. And, you know, when we landed in Reno, we were able to get in touch with most property owners within the first you know, few weeks that we were there. And so that's in the, the multifamily space and eventually just bled into the commercial space. And so we have been uh, progressing in that direction towards bigger and uh, maybe more complex deals. That's a lot to unravel there. So I guess let's go back to the beginning. You say we, us a lot. Uh, when you were first starting to invest, were you just investing by yourself or did you already have partners right from the get-go? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so originally it was me and one other partner. And so it was just the two of us buying out in Cincinnati. And to be honest, it was because I was researching for maybe three or four months, just listening to podcasts and other things, realizing I'm not taking any action here. You know, I'm researching and researching and having this analysis paralysis before I pull the trigger. So I thought, who's the person that's going to help me pull the trigger the most? And then I went and sought them out. And that was the weakness that I had back then. And so I went and sought that person out. And it was a friend of mine that I went to high school with. And we ended up purchasing something about a month later. And then, um, you know, kind of kept moving slowly from there. And then the we has now evolved to a, a team of five. It's me, as I said, um, two partners, one that was at Amazon and, and just left. And then, and then it's uh, two of our younger brothers. So my brother's about 20 years old right now. He's actually just been deferring college for the last year because of uh, the pandemic and being in college is not all it's crack up to be right now. <laughs> and uh, so he's been deferring and, and we'll see. He might, you know, he might never work a, a W-2 job in his life if all goes well in the next few months or years. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool to work with some of your really good friends as well as what, your siblings? So it's all kind of like a big family. Exactly. And what about your like third partner? You said he's like from Amazon, but how did you guys connect with him? We actually all went to the same high school. Um, local in, in San Jose, uh, Lee High School. 
my other partner, uh, you know, I wasn't super close with him in high school, but he roomed with the person I started buying out in Cincinnati with. And so it kind of all came together. We started that mastermind group together, uh, the three of us. And that was before the pandemic and was really good timing for us is uh, we kind of had this, you know, growing knowledge. We care about financial independence. And then there was an email that went out one day to all the big tech companies and said, Hey, you can uh, kind of go work anywhere, but you can't work from the office anymore. And the moment we got that email was uh, when all three of us were flying into town to do a mastermind retreat. And so it was just kind of beautiful timing because we took that mastermind retreat, which was supposed to be three days and we made it into, you know, what, like 15 months now to pursue this. And so you mentioned that you guys had this, you know, big tech background and you realized early on that deal flow is everything. And I completely agree with you right now. A lot of people have funds, especially here in the Bay Area. People want to find you know, better return with for their money. What do you guys do exactly to find leads? Yeah. So what we do for lead generation is, as I said, we use tech um, and we realize that real estate, especially on the acquisition side, is just a numbers game. So it's you create a funnel and the wider that funnel is, the more properties you can stuff into the top of it, the more that are going to fall out the other end that are actually strong deals. And you're going to lose some at every step of the way. But at the end, you need to be left with things that are strong enough that you can go in and de-risk the project because you get in a low enough price. And you can you know, start with all that margin or that baseline equity that when you enter. So we use tech to kind of do marketing outreach at scale. Um, we've tried everything from direct mail to cold calling to door knocking. We've delivered wine to people's houses. We've texted. We find that text works the best. Uh, so we like text. And But we, we originally built a lot of software in-house to use for this yeah, marketing outreach, I guess, and then have slowly kind of adopted other people's software and, and stuff as we obsolete our own. And <laughs> it's a pain when you write your own code and then it breaks midway and you are writing code instead of doing real estate. <laughs> so as an example, like in the past, you would write your own software to text message blast a bunch of people. And then you realize it's miles just pay like 50 bucks a month to use someone else's code. Is that kind of what happened? Exactly. Yeah. We were doing everything from scraping to skip tracing to text messaging and follow-ups and, you know, things running in the background all the time doing this, you know, while we sleep and stuff. And we were writing all that, but it kept breaking. And then we realized, ah, we can get a good, we can buy a lot of this. <laughs> we don't need to, we don't need to make it all ourselves. I guess at this point, are you still like text message blasting these owners? Cause now you're doing larger commercial deals. Is that still the best way to get, get more lead flow? Yeah, we do the, about, okay. In 2021, we split using uh, text messaging for about half of our outreach and then brokers provided us a probably the second half. So there is a lot more of like, you, you know, as you set up these relationships, people start to bring you stuff. And then that's the beauty of real estate is it's so leveraged because it compounds in every manner. And so as you build these relationships, they bring you more and more. So that's a big part of our deal flow at this point. But we also do text messaging still. And kind of at every layer of what we do, we kind of like to apply, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Thiel, but he has a, a quote, which is competitions for losers. And we believe very wholeheartedly in, in that quote. And so when we look at, say, the original uh, data we looked at was on market versus off market, we would snapshot, you know, multifamily that was on market at any given point in time. And we took a few different snapshots. And what we realized is there's like at any given point in time, 0.3% of the total supply of multifamily is on market. So that means you can either compete with, you know, 95% of the demand for that 0.3% of the supply, or you can go off market and compete for 99.7% of the supply. Um, and, and that's a way better you know, spot to be. And the same thing applies for, uh, that's why we A-B tested texting versus all these other methods. And we like texting the best. We don't want to compete. What we found is when I was meeting with owners, people 
weren't texting. And so owners were meeting with us because we were the only one texting them. And we weren't just sending direct mail, which is what most people were doing. And then that's how we gravitated away from single family towards multifamily and commercial as well, is we found when we were messaging multifamily or single family homeowners, you know, they're more frustrated because they were getting texted by other people, because they were getting mailers and whatnot. Their competition there is high. And so they were getting frustrated with us. But when we talked to commercial owners, uh, we just ask, what's your price? And they often just say it. And that's very straightforward. So we can streamline the process quite a bit by just not competing with people and going after things that, you know, to be honest, most people are scared to go after commercial buildings early on. They're a little more complex probably. And, but there's just a lot of uh, unfamiliarity. Everyone owns or lives in a home. And so they can kind of wrap their head around single family. Uh, but it's, it's tougher for people sometimes in the commercial space. And there's, there's more gotchas. There's a lot more to uncover. So we said, okay, let's not be scared of that. Let's learn that because we don't want to compete against people. We want to be in the pool of where we're the only one playing this game competing against ourselves only for like 50% of the supply out there. Yeah, that's really smart. I, I heard that text messages are really effective because everyone looks at their phone. When they get a text message, they yeah. always look at it. Whereas an email can easily get sent to spam or a letter can be thrown in the trash without even being opened. Text, you see it, you're going to look at it. Um, you don't like the message. And then by contacting these commercial owners, you're going to be talking to investors who are always open for an interesting deal. Whereas if you text message a homeowner, that could be more of an emotional thing to them, right? Like this is their home. They raised children in this home. And who is this random person offering to buy my property? Um, so they could be pretty frustrated and mad. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, the, the, the higher up we go, the more people seem to respond well. And they just want to get straight to the point. And as we get into the single family home space, we start to find we're just playing this emotional roller coaster or like trying to gauge how they're going to respond to these different things get to bigger assets, just very straightforward, cut and dry. And we like that. So at this point, how much do you say you're spending on text message blasting or on just marketing in general? And how many deals are you trying to get per, I guess, month or year? Yeah, it's it's um, really hard to say, actually, because when we were doing things in-house, it was less than $1,000 for the year. So we would spend less than 1000 and sourced, I think we ended up doing, it's been about 12 months in Reno. And so we've picked up about $19 million. Now we're going to other markets and we're going to use other people's software. I can't quote you on the numbers yet because we haven't haven't seen it play out, but I imagine it'll be higher. I don't think it'll be enough to really dent the value that we're able to generate from it. Yeah. I mean, don't they charge you like 10 cents per text that you send out? I think a lot of these services we use. So like when we were using Twilio directly, it was like a seventh of a cent per text. A lot of the services that you know are layered on top of Twilio and are sending messages out, they might charge more like a couple cents per text, but probably not 10. Got it. Maybe transfer to voicemail drop or something like that. Yeah, that sounds more reasonable, I think. And then what else do you use for with tech? Like, How does tech help you guys with your real estate business? To be honest with you, we're not super tech savvy just because the real estate industry is very hard to categorize. Um, and there's terrible data out there. There, there actually, there's, there's pretty much no data out there. <laughs> and what we find is, you know, we've A-B tested. We said, we want to get into a market and we want to understand it in three days. What data source can I buy? so that I can understand a market extremely fast. Because to understand a market, in my opinion, you just have to stare at as much data as you can possibly stare at. And you need to analyze 100 deals, 500 deals. And you know, so we'll have days where we're like, we're gonna go learn this market. We're all gonna sit down and we're gonna analyze 100 deals each and we're gonna share notes. What trends do we find? Um, we found that there is no good data source out there for commercial real estate, at least. It just like doesn't exist. CoStars, you know, CoStar and CompStack and Reonomy, and there's, there's data sources, but they're all pretty... Um, low accuracy and incomplete and, and whatnot. So that's kind of prevented us from using a lot more technology out there. 
outside of building really fancy underwriting and, and performa tools and stuff like that. So that's been pretty much the extent of our technology uh, usage that, or since the original kind of outreach. Got it. So I guess you only detect to create your own tools and then they realize that you might just pay for these tools. It's, it's an easier solution. Exactly. Okay, got it. Uh, now, when you get a new data source, what were you hoping for? And how would you have analyzed these markets if you had the proper data sets? Yeah, what we were hoping for is when you go into a market, you need to, to be able to underwrite a deal correctly. You need to have all your assumptions kind of ironed out. And what a lot of people forget is that uh, real estate's not really like a deterministic mathematical equation. So it's not that there is a exact value for a property that you're going to be able to say an ARV, for example, let's say you have a single family home and you're going to sell. There is no one ARV. There's actually you know a million different scenarios where you could exit at. And there's a probability assigned to each of those scenarios. And some scenarios are a lot more likely than others. And some of them are very unlikely. And what I, you know, the more data that I can have, the more certain I can be of my probabilistic model that I'm going to guess the ARV correctly on the other end. And so what I was looking for in data sets like CoStar and others was just really accurate, you know, rent data, cap rate data, uh, sale price data, price per square foot, price per door, price per, um, you know, single family home or other things. And, and so it's pretty basic stuff, but it's not out there. Um, no one's recording it and putting it all into one place. And I, th I think CoStar did the, the best job, but even they're um, just calling people and asking them for self-reported data in a pretty distributed manner. So it's it's um, there's not much out there, at least in the commercial and multifamily space. Got it. So then how did you decide ultimately to go into Reno? Yeah, so Reno, we are actually driven by, uh, and we kept hearing it from investors. So we're from the Bay Area, and I think Reno is extremely hot from Bay Area money meaning people are taking their properties, selling in the Bay Area, and they're 1031ing and moving their capital over to Reno, which is more of a tax shelter. It's actually the closest city to the Bay Area where you don't really have to pay taxes or closest major city. Um, so there's no state income tax, capital gains tax, and a lot of other taxes out there. So uh, we found a lot of people were moving their money over there and we said, okay, well, if we're going to go focus on deal flow, it'd be nice to have a few investors at our back when we get there. And we can maybe feed them deals or raise money from them and whatnot. And uh, we never actually ended up working with any of them, <laughs> the ones that we came here for. So, we, but we found other investors, we found other buyers, um, we found uh, people to raise funds from actually from where we used to work and stuff. It, it worked out in a different way. Um, you know, I want to kind of bring up a pretty big point. So, you guys are all relatively young. You know, I thought when I was investing at 25, 26, I was already super young. I go to meetups and everyone's like, oh, wow, who's this young guy? You guys are 24. You know, you started investing when you're 22. Your brother is in the business and he's 20 years old. It's sad to say, but like, I think a lot of people don't take younger folk very seriously, especially when it comes to giving you like their money, <laughs> $50,000 chunks. So I guess, how did you build that credibility to raise funds for these you know, $19 million projects? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So early on, age was a hindrance for us. It was hard to get people on board because you don't have a super long track record in real estate. And uh, you don't have the network and the connections. And you also just don't have you know, a beard. You don't show up and, and everyone just trusts the authority in the room and, and stuff like that. And that was a huge hindrance to us early on. Uh, age has actually transformed to be kind of our, our strength now. So because we're young, we think very differently. We approach things very differently. And also the story we build works the best because we're young. So the story that we build is what a lot of people like about investing in our projects. They hear how much we're, I guess, grinding away at this stuff. So when we moved into Reno, um, we had, you know, I said five of us on our team. We kind of, before that, realized, kept realizing we want this financial independence thing, but we're not showing it. We're not showing it with action. And so when we moved to Reno, 
we said, let's give up a lot of things to basically prove that we, we want this badly. So we moved into Reno. We moved into a one bedroom apartment. We slept on air mattresses for a month. We gave up, you know, alcohol. We changed our diet. We, we were all up at the same time at 6am working on real estate until we had to go to our jobs. And then after our jobs, we were working on real estate until 9pm again. And then we get up and do it the next day. And all of it was like every single thing that we gave up there was just to show to the other people around us how bad we wanted this. And that's something that you kind of have to be, young, I don't know if you have to be young to do, but I think you're going to find it more in young people that they are going to give up those things and they're going to kind of go to these extremes to be able to make things work. And so I can't imagine, you know, a five, 40 year olds getting together in a one bedroom apartment and, <laughs> and sleeping on air mattresses for a month or whatnot. So I think it's, it's helped us in some ways. And when people hear that story, they kind of drop the whole 24 year old thing. They stop caring. They just start seeing that you're working harder than others out there. And you're putting in the work on like upfront, but also on the due diligence and de-risking. And when they ask you questions, you know, the answers. And so just like someone who would be older. So uh, that's, that's helped us a lot. And the other thing is uh, coming from the tech industry. A lot of the early investors that we brought on were, uh, I guess, like old colleagues. So people we worked with that, you know, I've worked with at Google and uh, friends worked with at Amazon and whatnot. And so we didn't realize this early on because we thought we don't have a track record. How do we do this when we don't have a track record? And what we realized is you're actually building your track record the whole time. Your track record is your life resume. It's everything you do uh, and how you operate at your, at your work or at your, or at school, if you're in college, um, everything you do kind of shows, are you someone who thinks uh, very intelligently makes good decisions? Are you someone who can break down financial models? Are you someone who's going to de-risk and plan out ahead of time? So when I was at Google and being a, as a program manager, everything we did was about de-risking. It was about planning, you know, how are we going to launch this hardware three years out from now? And how do I enumerate all of the risks and de-risk them ahead of time? That's all we did. And then stay on top of it and drive to schedule, drive to schedule, drive to schedule. And so a lot of those skill sets transferred. And I think people like to believe at least uh, thought highly of me there and that uh, trust transferred over to real estate. Yeah, your reputation as a whole is super important. So if you're out getting drunk and acting crazy at every event you go to, and then one day later, they come around asking for money for a real estate project, it's a good chance that people won't want to give you the money because they're like, this guy's going to lose my money. But I guess if you're as respectable as Ryan here, then people will say, okay, I trust this guy. Here are my funds. Do the work. <laughs> That's exactly right. What would you say were, I guess, some of your biggest challenges once you decided to actually buy the real estate? Not just raising the funds, but actually getting into it. And now you have a project to deal with. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part is until you do something, you can learn from other people's mistakes. You can learn from books. But a lot of times you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of blind spots in real estate. And so when we were going in, a lot of what we had to do was just be extremely cautious and be uh, and kind of go over the top with our due diligence. So when we were going in, whenever we got bids, we had to go and get them from 10 different contractors just so that we can back check ourselves. And a lot of the times we might be getting 10 bids on the same item, despite the fact that it was a perfectly fine bid right off the bat, <laughs> but we didn't know that. So we had to be, we had to be extra thorough in everything that we did early on, because if we knew that once you lose money on a project for investors, you might be done then and there. So you get one failure early on. If you get, you know, 10 years down the line and certain investors have done five projects with you and on the sixth one, you know, they don't make as much as you promised. They're not going to care. They're going to brush it off a lot more. But like early on, you have everything on the line. So we had to be extremely thorough there. And one thing I would say is, um, I guess the hardest thing we've had to face so far 
is not like even significantly or significant size rehabs. Those are not too problematic for us, but ones where we have to open up walls because you don't know what you're buying. So you don't know what's behind a wall until you open it up. So we don't actually mind, you know, I would rather do a million dollar rehab where I know exactly where every dollar is going to be spent because it's all on the surface level or I'm building something new up from the ground up and I can predict those things than a $500,000 rehab where I have to open up a wall and then cross my fingers and hope that it's all good stuff behind that wall. And so we've had projects where we open up those walls and the plumbing is just destroyed or the electrical. And so we found that those are the projects that we want to avoid the most. In fact, if I go into, if we're going into any big rehabs in the future where we're opening up walls, I'm going to open up the wall in escrow or I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to close. Um, and so or not going to, I'm not going to go into escrow is what I should say. And so most sellers probably have never been asked that. Can I open up the wall in escrow? Um, Would sellers be down to do that though? I, I find that hard to imagine. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they probably will. If you throw an extra 5,000 into the earnest pool or something like that and say, Hey, you can take this extra earnest. If I don't patch this wall, it's yours. So you write an agreement that says, I'm going to open up, you know, this one foot by one foot here and in, in this spot, this spot, in this spot. And here's $5,000 to show that, you know, you're going to be taken care of if anything goes south. So there are ways to de-risk um, even opening up walls and checking what's behind them. But we don't like to leave any stone unturned in the escrow process because that's when you're safe. That's when you have, you know, your parachutes and you can get out like unscathed. Once you close, you a lot of times now you got to finish the project <laughs> regardless of what pops up. Absolutely. Can you give me an example of some of the deals that you've done? Yeah. Yeah. So we started in multifamily when we got to Reno, we came here because that's what we knew. So we were coming from what we knew and we were doing slightly bigger deals. So we did an eight unit last year uh, that we picked up for 1.1 million in Reno. It was 89 days from purchase to sale. And we ended up selling it while we were still rehabbing it to someone who needed to close by the end of the year. Um, so someone coming from California, they needed to close for tax reasons by the end of 2020. So we sold for 1.55 million. Um, and that was in, yeah, about an 89 day turnaround. Uh, the next, then we rolled every, all the investors over to two more multifamilies, uh, five and a, yeah, five and a six unit, um, which we're on market with right now. Uh, we picked them both up at 700,000, put about a hundred thousand into each of them. We're selling at one, three, five, uh, for the first, the five unit. And we're selling at, um, uh, we're going on market at 1.7 tomorrow for the other building. So that's kind of where we, in the multifamily space. And then we branched out from there towards some retail and, uh, office a motel, and some like light industrial. So yeah, we're only keeping planning to keep one of those buildings long term, which is the motel. Um, just for motels can you know produce some massive cash flow if you do them correctly. Then uh, the other ones were kind of doing a kind of the equivalent of a flip in the commercial space. So they'll probably be one to three year projects each. So a lot of those kind of the key distinctions between those multifamily and commercial is instead of with a multifamily, you kind of go in and you rehab the building. And then you start placing tenants in commercial, you actually place tenants and they tell you what they want you to rehab and then you rehab it. And so you wait for a tenant because if I, you know, pre rehab it and make it ready for a bar and then a restaurant shows up or even more different, like a gym, uh, I just threw a lot of money at nothing to now, and now I have to go and change the building again. So you have different types of tenants in there. So you kind of wait for them to show up and then build to their suit, which is one of the things that makes it harder to underwrite and harder to predict. But, you know, it's just a, it's a little different game. Yeah, that's really unique. Most people that I know who, you know, even do syndications, they tend to stick with one type of like a commercial. They just stick with multifamily or they go with like industrial or office. You know, they, they don't really do all, especially not all at once. Why did you guys decide to branch out to so many different like types of commercial? 
we didn't want to be scared of other asset classes. So we were okay with not doing other asset classes because if that meant that we could focus in on say multifamily and really make those projects extremely valuable. But what we didn't want to do is, you know, leave a lot of, I guess, a lot left on the table because we were scared to go into commercial. So we would have days where we said, okay, we're about to go into commercial. Let's each, you know, let's pick one of the asset classes in there, office, retail, industrial. Uh, you're going to go study that for three days. You're going to go study that for three days. You're going to go study that for three days and distribute the work between all our partners. And then we'd come back and teach each other. And we'd have like classroom sessions basically where we'd uh, have a big whiteboard and, and write up, here's all the factors that matter, the variables that matter. And then the beauty of focusing on deals and deal flow is that we click, click a couple buttons and we start going after commercial properties and when CoStar doesn't have data uh, or other, you know, other sites don't have data that we can use, well, we can just go, you know, outreach to a bunch of sellers and a bunch of owners. And that's where we get our data. So we got to analyze way more data points probably than the average investor out there. So we can condense, you know, multiple years of learning in the commercial or any other space into maybe a month or two, because we just get to see so many deals. Um, have you found any real differences between the different types of assets? Uh, in the macro trends, definitely. Um, I think, you know, some asset classes I like a lot better than others. Uh, when it comes to retail and office, I think, especially with the pandemic and uh, and kind of the growth of e-commerce and stuff like that, those asset classes, we want to get in really low. You know, we want a bunch of equity built in the day we close and we want to get in a really low price. And that's how we de-risk those projects. Uh, with other things, we're a little more bullish with, say, the industrial buildings um, and also some some motels as well. So we're a little more bullish on those because I think the demand is either here to stay or probably growing in both cases. So industrial, you know, if you're looking at industrial, the e-commerce trend has existed for the last 10 years. It's been growing almost extremely steadily for the last 10 years. And that's what actually drives industrial demand is big e-commerce distribution centers, you know, need uh, Amazon warehouses and things like that and data centers as well. So we've been seeing that grow for a long time and it actually just COVID just expedited it, compressed three or four years of growth or whatever it may be into a year. So we really like the longevity of, of industrial. Uh, we really like hotels and motels because uh, I think there's there's opportunity for value add hotel and motel out there. The demand is, you know, it's kind of artificially compressed for the last uh, year. And that means there's going to be some things for sale at good prices. And you can pick up those pick up those good prices and the demand will kind of return back uh, back to normal because it wasn't an overbuilt asset class before this. And there wasn't a declining trend of travel or anything like that uh, before COVID. So uh, we like those asset classes. But in terms of um, maybe differences in operation, these commercial assets, they tend to have longer leases. So unlike a residential building, like a multifamily, you might have 10 units and you have 10 separate tenants all signing a one-year lease that turns into month to month after that. In a lot of these uh, retail and office and industrial buildings, you have less tenants. They're bigger and they're taking, they're, they're a business, not a, not a person uh, or an individual uh, tenant. And they are signing a lease that can be three years, five years, 10 years, or, you know, I've seen, I've seen a 70 year lease actually uh, for a utility company. So some of them get really long or yeah, really far out there. And a lot of the leases are also um, there's uh, some aligned incentives built into them. So commercial buildings will sign what's called say a triple net lease and they will uh, take on all the variability of the expenses so that the tenant will pay all of the expenses, the property tax, the insurance, the maintenance, the utilities, and things like that. Uh, so that the, as an owner or building owner or landlord, you know, I don't have to predict what are my expenses going to be this year and take guesses. I just know what rent I'm collecting 
and that's it. That's the net operating income for my building. So you can add a lot of predictability there uh, by having you know a ten year lease and having it be triple net. So a lot of people like the asset, you know, these asset classes for that reason. Did you have any issues like raising funds from your previous set of investors because suddenly you're moving away from multifamily into commercial or industrial? Uh, we didn't have a huge problem because I think a lot of a lot of it's just about trust and education. So if people trust you, a lot of times trust will transfer to other asset classes. Uh, they're actually trusting your character and your transparency and things like that, not just your knowledge. And then if you're trying to build, not, let's call it knowledge trust instead, you do that by educating them. So if you understand it and you can talk and speak through it with clarity enough so that they can understand it, then they're going to trust you from a knowledge perspective because you just took them from a state of not understanding anything about, say, a commercial asset to understanding the nuances and what are the right questions to ask. And if they feel like, you know, you were able to educate them properly, then now they're going to trust you on the knowledge basis as well. So we didn't have a lot of problems as long as we said we have to know exactly how this asset class works enough so that we can explain it to other people coming from, you know, very little or no base knowledge and they feel like they understand it as well. Makes sense. I mean, if you can explain to them, then they trust you more. They also are investing based on your judgment, not necessarily on your past experience with this asset class. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, you're also mentioning you're reaching out directly to these commercial owners through text. Is that is that your main method of reaching out to them? Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, I think most of them have never seen a text from anyone before, <laughs> uh, which is why it works. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, exactly. So it's why it works. Um, and it's our main method. And I don't think it will be forever. Um, I think things evolve in real estate. You know, direct mail was maybe king at one point in time. And there's other marketing methods that have been and, and it changes over time. And as people get on board and you kind of have to stay one step ahead a lot of the time. And I think text is ahead. Uh, and maybe there's some, there's probably someone out there who's ahead of that and they're doing, you know, even faster or even better. And, and so I'd love to hear what it is, but uh, yeah, you kind of have to keep moving at times. Yeah, I know uh, maybe two years ago, I went to some conferences and people were talking about like cold calling centers. They're like, oh, uh, not only do I cold call, but I have a whole team of you know virtual assistants that cold call. But now everyone's doing that and it's like kind of annoying. So <laughs> yeah. I think that's getting phased out. Uh, yeah, text is good, but who knows? Maybe after this episode gets released, everyone's going to want to jump on text and that <laughs> method won't work anymore. It definitely could happen. So I guess let's go into that a little bit. Like, What are some of the tools that you use? Like, Number one, where do you go to find your, your list? How do you determine who you're going to market to? And then I guess what tools do you use for your, your tech stuff, like your tech session bus? Yeah, I mean, most of these, there's probably multiple options, like lists you can get from any number of sources. Um, you can get them from some of the data sources I mentioned earlier. You can get them from county websites, a lot of assessor sites. Like in Reno, I can go and download uh, from the county assessor sites all public information, all the property addresses and who the owners are. Uh, and sometimes there's, you know, LLCs. So you have to kind of try and figure out how to get, figure out who the actual owner is and stuff. But uh, yeah, you can, that's, that's your starting point. You go from there and build your data set. And then there's lots of different sites out there for skip tracing. If you just Google skip tracing and stuff, a bunch of them come up. We've AB tested a lot of them. We actually use a kind of a specific person. Uh, and I don't actually know where they get their skip tracing, their backend skip tracing data in, but we, we AB tested a lot of them and they, um, his came out the best. So, uh, we kind of keep returning there and, and then, uh, yeah, there's even text messaging platforms, bunch of choices. Uh, that one, I, we, you know, compared lead Sherpa, we compared Roar and some other ones didn't find huge differences between a lot of this stuff. And, uh, so I think any of them can work. What do you do specifically? I know, I know everyone can go and just like go on a tax record, but what do you guys use? Yeah. I mean, we actually use Reonomy, but it's no different than 
the assessor site if your assessor allows for downloading. Uh, it's really simple data. It's uh, property addresses and owner names. And so, yeah, there's there's many places to get that. Reonomy is one of them, but it's not the only one. Okay, so use Reonomy. And then how do you decide out of the you know thousands of commercial buildings that you want to target these specific people? Uh, we don't. We don't filter. <laughs> okay, got it. So anyone that has a commercial building is getting a text message from Ryan. <laughs> uh, we're, we're messaging whole cities, pretty much. Whole cities saying, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we uh, go to, when we got to Reno, you know, as I said, I think we message, you know, you can't always find everyone's number, but you don't filter out based, or we don't filter out based on, you know, who's in pre-foreclosure or who's in, uh, you know, who's got a bunch of equity built up into the building or who, yeah, whose loan's about to end. Like, we don't do any of those filters. So that's why I say the data set's so simple. It's not, you know, some extremely um, insightful data set that has all this, you know, all this data on people. Uh, we don't filter, it's just everybody. And then for, I guess you're skip tracing at that point, because for most of these tax workers, you get the name and the address. Are you free to share who you get your skip tracing from? Um, yeah, it's just a guy I met in real estate who does a lot of, uh, he actually was setting up call centers and stuff like that. So um, his name's Elliot and he runs uh, Call Magic. Uh, and so he was doing uh, a lot of calling and now he's doing some texting and stuff like that. So that's where we get our skip tracing data in or from, but he uses, uh, you know, a lot of what he does is, is bulk. So we just recently started using him before that it was all in-house. We were just going on sites and scraping, scraping data and that worked pretty well as well. So, um, for Elliot, he likes to take on, uh, mass, you know, pretty big quantities of properties all at once, 10,000 things like that. And then do you pay like 10 cents per yeah, I don't remember exactly the price. I think it scales down as you get to bigger and bigger numbers, um, but it's something around there. Gotcha. I mean, uh, I was doing that before too. Like I was trying to create my own software to do skip tracing. Like I would go to fastpeoplesearch.com and create code to skip trace, mm -hmm. uh, but it was a pain in the butt. <laughs> and also sometimes the numbers aren't accurate. Yep. I don't know if you found an issue with that. We, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's inaccurate and we get a lot of, hey, this is the wrong number or uh, buzz off. And as I said, it's a numbers game. You're going to lose a bunch out every layer of the filter and that's fine. You know, we just move on with the ones that do work out and you don't have to win them all. You just win some of them. That's right. And then again, you said for the uh, text message blast, which ones do you prefer? Uh, that one we didn't really have a huge preference on. Uh, there's a couple names out there, Lead Sherpa, Roar. Um, they all seem perfectly fine to me. And those ones are about what, like four cents per text message? Uh, it might be something like that. I want to say it's a little cheaper, but it, I think there's like a base fee for the, for the software and then there's, you know, things on top of that. So that at what point did you start making those broker connections? And again, how did you get the brokers who are, you know, out there making tens of million dollars of deals or whatever to give you guys off market opportunities, someone who's new to the industry and also super young? Yeah. So what I've found with brokers a lot is uh, if you go and cold reach out to a broker and you've never done a deal before, it's really hard uh, because they have no reason to put you at the top of your list. You imagine every broker out there has a list of buyers and when they find a good off-market deal, they're going to show it to number one on that list. And then if that person passes, they'll show it to number two and so forth. And that's typically the way it works for most of these brokers. And so what I found is if you go and work with the broker and you show up and you say, hey, I'm new, I haven't done anything and uh, can you help me find something? You know, you're bringing no value to them unless they don't have a buyer's list at all. But everyone's got a buyer's list right now because there's so many buyers, right? So what you need to do is bring some value to the table. And so what we did early on is we actually brought a couple off-market deals uh, to our broker. And and I think the first time I met him actually, um, and he seemed like a really trustworthy guy, but we said, you know what, let's just have an abundance mentality about this. And if we show him three of our, you know, three of these deals that we have off-market that we think are solid and he gives us feedback on them and whatnot, uh, then, you know, we'll have plenty more. If he takes them and runs with them and just kind of screws us, like, you know, we'll have plenty more to come. It's no problem. 
let's invest in the long run. And, and it worked out. And so, you know, he really kind of, we built a lot of trust with him. We've done almost all of those deals he's transacted uh, on our behalf on. So when we find deals, we actually still use a broker. Uh, we don't want to go in un, unrepresented, unprotected, and then also have to manage all the paperwork and all the, you know, uh, understanding leases and, and stuff like that. We do our, we do understand all those things, but he points out a lot of blind spots that we have. So uh, we basically provided some value to him up front and that's why he worked with us. And when you, what I found is in this market, at least when you start showing a broker deals, uh, you jump right to the top of their list because that's, what's most coveted for, for them. It's the most valuable resources is deals because they have plenty of buyers, as I mentioned. And so they don't have off market deals. When you can bring that to the table, then they're going to share all their off market deals with you too. So we found the broker who, you know, one of the brokers is probably sourcing the most off market in Reno. He's young and he's hungry. Um, and we basically worked with him and now we both share a lot of those wins together. Can you clarify that a little bit when you said you showed an off-market deal? Does that mean that you had a deal off-market from the seller, but you still brought him in as like a, a buyer's representative or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So so as I mentioned, we use a broker on all of our deals. So even when we source something, uh, you know, on a big, let's say we're going in on a, you know, $1.5 million retail building, we don't want to go in unre- unrepresented and we like to have someone kind of keeping us accountable, keeping the schedules and the, and all the paperwork and also, but also being able to like understand the contract because they've been using the same one for, you know, 10 years or whatever it is. And they can navigate their way through the escrow and help, help us, uh, you know, play safely basically as we, as we go through the transaction. So, um, yeah, we bring in a broker to help with the transaction always. Um, and then we find it always, it's pretty much always paid off. So even if it doesn't matter in the escrow and everything goes very smoothly, uh, the broker that we use in Reno most frequently has ended up bringing us uh, sellers on the other end to exit. They've ended up connecting us contractors, lawyers, CPAs, or even tenants actually in the commercial space, you know, retail tenants and, and whatnot, because uh, our broker actually owns a few retail businesses in town. So he's pretty well connected in that space. So we find it, it pays in other ways, at least in our case. And I don't know that that would always be true. And maybe you got to kind of iterate and finding a broker. And we got lucky to find um, a really good one on the first, you know, the first try. But I think a, a, someone who's well ingrained in the industry or a broker here will find a way to provide their value. So when you negotiate with the seller's price, again, usually for a typical transaction, the seller is the one who pays for both sides of the brokerage. Um, in this case, do you just pay your guy on top of whatever you agree with with the seller? Uh, yeah, a lot of the time. So sometimes sellers uh, will actually just go ahead and in, like we'll include it like normal when it's uh, on market. That sometimes sometimes they're asking for net prices, so they say, "I want to net this much," meaning they want to take that much home and put it in their pocket at the end of the sale. In which case, you know, then it's on us to decide. Okay, well, we're going to put the commission on our side. What's it going to be? And so, you know, a lot of times a broker kind of there's a multiple values they're bringing to the table. A lot of times it is the deal itself, and then it's also the ability to kind of navigate you through the transaction and advise you along the way. So uh, when we bring the deal, you know, it's it's usually a different different commission than uh, if if they bring the deal to us. Uh, so it'll be a slightly different number, but yeah, we'll usually just slap the commission on top if the seller doesn't want to uh, put it on their side. And that way they're getting, you know, our broker's getting compensated in some way, either way. Yeah. I mean, it's so worth it for them because they did essentially no work, right? Like the hardest part is finding the lead and then finding the actual deal. But if you did both, then they're just there for the formality of it. And it's yeah. uh, easy, easy money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we like the main reason for us is our investor is able to provide value in other ways. So we like to incorporate them and get them tied in and, you know, emotionally invested in this project. Cause once he brokers for us on the entry, uh, he, you know, sees us through the whole project, even beyond the close, which, uh, not all brokers will do, but that's the case for us. Um, so let's go back a little bit and talk about raising money. 
I think a lot of people are kind of confused about the way these structure deals. So can you kind of go over how you guys decide to structure your projects yeah. with your investors? Yeah, definitely. And so when I first started researching how to structure deals, what I realized is there's not really a standard. Um, there are probably setups that are more common than others, but there wasn't like a one model that is, you know, kind of the baseline starting point for everybody. And so you'll hear a lot of like waterfall structures and, and profit splits or equity splits and fees and things like that. And we decided we want to waive all of that in the name of like transparency, um, or maybe not all of that, but most of that. And all we do is a profit split. So we don't take fees. Um, we don't do a waterfall. We do, it'll be somewhere between a 75, 25, meaning the passive investors will have 75% of the profit and we'll have 25% to 50, 50 in some cases. So we vary that based on how active the project is. Uh, and if it's super passive and we're just kind of, you know, most of what we did was finding the deal and closing because it was a good price, but we don't have to do anything after that. It might be more towards the 75, 25 side. And if we're super active because we're running, you know, that first one I mentioned, you know, we flipped it in three months. Uh, so we're active every second of the way, then we're going to take a little larger portion of the pool. But we find that just profit split and removing all those other things keeps the incentive structures completely aligned. We're only going to win when the project wins and we're going to lose if the project loses. And also, it keeps things simple. It's really easy to understand a profit split model. Basically, as an investor, like a passive investor, you're going to get all of your capital back. And then whatever's left over is profit. And we're going to split it. Do you guys do like prefer returns during the holding period of some of these projects? You know, we, we don't for most of these because we don't have a holding period. <laughs> um, a lot of, you know, I think in the syndication world, the common thing is, you know, a five-year hold or maybe three to five-year hold somewhere in that range. And you kind of stabilize the project. You wait for it to season and, and then you... Uh, are providing a preferred return in the meantime until you finally exit. And we actually don't see, we're exiting, you know, in six month period, maybe one year period. And so there isn't really a period of time where cash flow and preferred returns makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's, that's part of the reason. The other part is like in Reno, Reno is not, it's not the cap rates of the Bay area, but it's actually pretty low cap rates. And so there's not a lot of cash flow in Reno. And so there's like hitting an 8% preferred return in Reno is, is pretty tough because your cap rates are so low. And so it doesn't really make a lot of sense in this particular market. It might make more sense in other markets, um, especially if we were to yeah, stabilize and hold longer. And how are you financing your projects? Um, most of them were going in with hard money and then we would refinance out unless we were going to sell the building right away. Um, so that's most cases. That said, we, we do have some, um, there's some banks in town in Reno who are kind of under leveraged on commercial assets. So for some reason, there are basically a lot of banks out there will have different buckets for asset classes. So they'll say, we're going to give this many million dollars to multifamily and this many million to, to office and this many million to retail. And so we found there's a lot of banks in Reno right now, for some reason, they have filled up a lot of their multifamily buckets, but not a lot of their other commercial buckets. And so when we were buying commercial properties, we were actually able to get really good terms, even on some of our value add commercial projects. So we have one that we closed, which it had two third or sorry, three quarters of the building was about to go vacant in the month or two after closing. Um, and we were able to get 25% down 3.75 interest, a uh, 25 year loan and non-recourse because the local banks just really wanted that type of asset class. And they knew we were going in at a low price. So, you know, the building appraised for 200,000 over what we were purchasing and, and other things. So they were, they felt pretty sound about it. Um, but you know, 75% vacancy is nothing to scoff at. So, um, how many units is that one? Uh, so that's a retail building. So it's, it was divided into three units to start, but in commercial, uh, that's more liquid, right? Like I, I can 
take a space and subdivide it a bunch for some, a bunch of small tenants, or I can knock down a bunch of walls for one big tenant. So it's kind of all configurable and changeable kind of a house or of Legos or something like that. Wow. That's so cool. I can imagine that. Well, commercial is actually pretty cheap, right? 3.75% for a 25 year term. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, some of the terms for these lenders are, are really quite solid uh, in the commercial space. And, and I don't know uh, entirely if that applies. Um, you know, I think, I think that was probably more true for us in Reno that they were searching, these local banks were searching for commercial property. Um, but I think in general, the interest rates are just a, like half a point higher for commercial or something like that. Not too bad. Not too bad. So what's next for you guys? Uh, so yeah, we've been in Reno for the last 12 months. That's where we've been focused. And so that's where we've done all of our deals so far. Uh, and now we're starting to look at other markets. So uh, we just entered Raleigh, North Carolina last week. Um, I think in the last five days or so, we've submitted about 21 million in LOIs out there. And we're going to be looking at Texas. We're going to be looking at um, a few other other markets that we kind of like the macroeconomics of. Awesome. So if you guys can't get a nice bank loan at 3.75% and you need another hard money loan, let me know. I can help you in Raleigh and Texas. Awesome. That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you again so much for being on the show today. How can people get in contact with you? Best way is to go on to, uh, we have a Facebook group called Open Source Real Estate. Um, you can find me through that group. Uh, my name's Ryan Stenberg. So if you want to shoot me an email at ryanstenberg10 at gmail.com, that's another way. Uh, Otherwise, we have a, a meetup group. So if you're in the Bay Area and want to come hang out locally, uh, we'll actually be having a meetup you know, tomorrow night at Stein's Beer Garden in Mountain View. So we host those every three or so weeks. Um, and they're, they're pretty fun just uh, like to get a bunch of people together and you know, eat food, drink beer, stuff like that. Talk real estate. Wait, aren't you in Reno? You're in the Bay Area now? Uh, I am in Reno, but uh, we come in for the meetup every three weeks. Wow, you guys are dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been hosting my meetup online because I'm too lazy to host a live event. Actually, I might, I might, I'm going to show up to you guys. Yeah, tomorrow. that would be awesome. What's the meetup group called? Um, I think it's also Open Source Real Estate. So it's the same name as the Facebook group. Uh, and they there should be links to each other on, from both in both directions. Awesome. Well, Ryan, do you have anything else you have to say before we uh, finish up our show today? Um, no, I just want to say thanks for, thanks for having me on, Sean. I really appreciate the meetups. Uh, that I've been yeah, able to attend and, and the show in general. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Ryan. Uh, this was an amazing episode. I'm sure people get a lot of value out of it, especially when it comes to finding their um, direct leads from text message blasting and also not being scared to like contact people that most people probably aren't contacting. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I hope it's super helpful. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.